you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 9 and 10 this morning in the first part of a series on women in worship. Recently, I was uh, at the Glendale Galleria, which is it's uh, quite the mall. I mean, we don't have anything like that in Idaho. And uh, I was there, and <clears throat> we were walking around, uh, looking at all the stores and the lights and everything, and and. Uh, Leaning on this rail in between uh, the bottom floor and the second floor was this young man. And uh, he had this very elaborate hairdo. Um, he had the sides of his head cut really short and uh, bleached, just like, just, you know, blonde. And then he had dyed leopard spots um, into the, to the, to the blonde part. And then the center of his head had these real long uh, spikes. And I don't know how he did it, but they were sticking up about a, a foot in a fan that, uh, like, a, you know, a coxcomb or something over. And each one of those was dyed a different color. Uh, not only that, he had all sorts of body piercings and earrings and eyebrow things and nose things and... I didn't look in his mouth, but I would suspect by the, the rest of him, he probably had his tongue pierced as well. He, he had all sorts of leather on with you know, bracelets with big spikes, and um, everything was black and white and silver and big black baggy clothes. And, and just uh, I looked at him and I thought, wow, and this guy's on display right there in the center of the mall. And he's there all by himself, just leaning over the rail, like, look at me. Well, I never talked to the guy, but I know something about that young man. That man's in rebellion. He's into non-conformity. He's struggling with narcissism and self-glorification. You see, technically speaking... What we wear and how we do our hair has nothing to do with our salvation. You are not saved by a hairdo. You are not saved by what you wear. Yet, your appearance tells others about your attitudes, your priorities, your values, what you Dress and how you adorn yourself tells other people what is in your heart. And in the text before us, Paul addresses the role of women in public worship and specifically how they look, their personal appearance. We noted last week as we were looking at verse 8 that verse 8 is kind of a hinge verse. He's been talking in verses 1 through 7 about evangelistic prayer and the reasons for it. And then verse 8 kind of concludes verses 1 through 7 and kind of begins verses 9 through 15. It is this transition verse because after talking about prayer, Paul makes this interesting statement that he wants men, and the Greek word is males only, to be praying in public, leading in corporate worship in that way. And he explains that they are to do it without wrath or dissension, that is, 
Yes, males are to do it, but they can't do it if their heart isn't right. They have to have, quote, lifting up holy hands, which we talk about is really a posture of the heart, not of the body. And this would, of course, be why then Paul begins to speak to women in verses 9 and 10, when he begins, likewise, I want women to do certain things. And when he says that, he begins to describe some certain things about women's appearance that he wants to have regulated in the church. Because as we noted many times before, this entire section all the way through chapter 3 is how one ought to conduct themselves in the household of God. And so what we want to do is we want to read uh, verses 8 through 15. And then today we're just going to look at verses 9 and 10. Now, it's been good because um, uh, I was wondering how much communication I would get from people who are wondering about this or that um, after talking about uh, prayer and, you know, about I want men. And some people think, well, what, can't women pray? No, women can pray. Uh, women can pray anywhere. You know, that's one of the things that bothers me about prayer in public schools. You can pray anywhere you want. You may not be able to pray out loud anywhere you want. But we aren't praying so men can hear us. We're praying so who can hear us? God. So you can pray anywhere you want. And women are, of course, supposed to pray in public worship. They can pray audibly in Bible studies and small groups and prayer meetings and, you know, in the home. I don't know, everywhere else. But when it comes to corporate worship, whatever that would be defined, in that place, God says, I want the men to lead in prayer specifically for the salvation of the lost and without wrath and dissensions, lifting up holy hands. So let's look at verses 8 through 15, follow along, and we're going to get into some really fun stuff today. Paul says, Therefore I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created... And then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith, love, and sanctity with self-restraint. So from verses 9 and 10, we want to look at two points today. The godly woman's appearance and the godly woman's actions. First, let's talk about the godly woman's appearance. Paul says, likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing. Now, just stop right there. The word adorn that is used here is the Greek word cosmeo. It's the word we get cosmetics from. And you know what cosmetics are. That's what women put their, on their face to make them look better, hopefully. And it's not that women don't have faces, but sometimes they like to enhance the face they like. Sometimes they want to cover up the face they have. But in any case, women use cosmetics to order or arrange their face. 
And that's basically what the word means when he says, I want women to adorn themselves. And then he says, with proper clothing. You know, we dress in certain ways to fit different contexts. And this is appropriate. Just like if you were going to go painting in your house, you wouldn't you know, wear a nice suit or a nice dress to paint with. So when you come to church, there are proper things that you can wear. And things that would be improper. You wouldn't want to, you know, go to a formal dinner and uh, shorts and a t-shirt and sandals. Why? Because it would be out of context. You wouldn't want to go skiing in a wedding dress. That would be difficult. You would probably be sailing after a while. So... Proper clothing is what Paul is talking about here, to adorn themselves with proper clothing. And he's not only talking about clothing, he's talking about appearance in general. We're going to see why. But he uses two terms to modify what this proper clothing would be. He says, modestly and discreetly. Modestly and discreetly. First, the word modesty describes Feminine reserve in the matters of sex and sexual things. That's what the word means. It's talking about chastity. Negatively, a woman would not dress seductively or suggestively or provocatively. She would not want to dress that way when she comes to worship. She probably wouldn't want to dress that way most of the time. She wouldn't want to be lewd or revealing which might be interpreted by others, especially men, as desiring to attract their attention, would be making a, quote, sexual connotation. The second word, discreetly, is a similar type word. One lexicon described it as perfect self-mastery in physical appetites and sexual desires. Both of these words describe things related to sex and sexual things. Plato used the word discreetly to describe one of the four cardinal virtues of sexual purity. Now, I want you to keep this in mind that Paul begins by describing adornment with these two words that have overt sexual connotations, because we're going to get back to that in a minute. But he goes from there and he describes some other specifics. Notice what the text says in verse 9. He says, Not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments. Now in the first century, braided hair was something that was in style. It was women would grow their hair long. They would braid it up, you know, put it in loops and big coils up on top of their head. And then what they would do is they would take all sorts of jewelry and trinkets and ornaments. And it was kind of like, you know, wearing a Christmas tree on your head. It was kind of like walking around with a jewelry store up there. And this was designed to attract attention. In essence, she would be having her wealth on her head. She would have her social status on her head. She would be advertising herself and her standing in society, and her head would be like a lighthouse. Look at me. And that's what they did back then. Now, Paul is not arguing against hairstyles per se. 
Because in a way, any way a woman would wear her hair would be her particular hairstyle. And he's not arguing for ugly hairstyles. He's not saying, oh, if your hair is ugly, it is so virtuous. He's not saying that either. There are some women today who make a statement by not washing their hair. They allow it to get all tangled and, and dirty and disorderly. I think it's called dreadlocks. In the first service I called it, I think, dreadnoughts. But those are boats, aren't they? Um, somebody came up to me and corrected me. They're dreadlocks. Um, I saw a woman like that one time and said, man, what's wrong with that woman's hair? And then my wife explained to me that they were something like that. But that would be the opposite extreme, where you come in and your hair is so messed up that you attract attention to yourself. You're basically saying, hey, I am tired of shampooing and tired of putting conditioner on. I am tired of blow-drying my hair, and so I'm going to go to the opposite stream. I'm going to look so ugly that you'll notice me that I am different. That would be the opposite extreme. And so what Paul is warning against are those hairstyles that might be a stumbling block to others, like the poor, like other women, like men. For instance, in the temple of Artemis, which was a huge temple there at Ephesus, there were a thousand uh, uh, temple prostitutes that would come down into the city at night and, of course, try to worship with men. And this sort of behavior was just common in that culture. And they had specific hairstyles that they would wear. And we aren't absolutely certain what kind of hairstyles they were. It really doesn't matter. But whatever those kind of hairstyles were, it would probably be good if you were there in the church of Ephesus not to wear that kind of hairstyle. And you can imagine why. I mean, here's some poor guy who's just repented of that lifestyle, who has been engaged in sexual immorality with these prostitutes, and now he's trying to worship in church, and here's these women sitting around him, which is just doing nothing but reminding him of those things that have plagued his life and and tormented him, and it's hard for him to worship. So that's what Paul is getting at. And this would not show a a godly or submissive heart if you were a woman and you were there causing men to stumble. Now, the general principle for us is this. Don't use your hair to attract attention to yourself. Or don't use your hair to display your wealth or to do any ungodly behavior. Don't have any hairstyles that would cause other people to envy or to lust or to covet. Don't focus on vanity, but on godliness. That is what Paul is saying. Then Paul also mentions, notice what the text says. He says, gold and pearls. That's interesting. Modestly, discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls. Now, back then, uh, gold and pearls were very expensive. Actually, pearls were more expensive to gold than gold. That was before they started learning how to culture them, I guess. And they didn't know how to open them up and, you know, put some sand in there to make them produce pearls. And so you'd have to eat a lot of oysters, you know. You'd be sucking down a lot of raw oysters because it's bad if you cook the pearl to try and just find just one pearl. Now, you can imagine what it would be like being in that time, and all of a sudden, you, you were there among 
all these people that you normally would never come in contact with. You were a wealthy woman, let's say, and you hang around with the upper class and, and you do things with the upper class and you don't hang around with those other substratas of society. But when the gospel went out, a lot of people were being saved from all sorts of social status, weren't there? I mean, Paul speaks in Acts of women who were prominent in the city and women who were wealthy. Uh, People like Lydia, who had her own business, the seller of purple uh, fabrics. And some of these women would be coming and they'd have these elaborate hairdos with all this, this jewelry in it, this walking jewelry store. And they'd be sitting in the pew and then, you know, the guy next to him who is starving, who's the guy who came to the Lord from the street, who is the beggar, who has, you know, gone around uh, just barely squeaking out a living, is looking at that woman's head and he's thinking to himself, wow. If I could just cut off some of those braids. I I could feed my whole family for years with what's in that woman's hair. And you could see how it would be distracting to him. And see, we put stuff that's expensive on our persons because that attracts attentions to ourselves, doesn't it? I mean, how many people here have a really nice cast iron bracelet? How come... You know, we don't have really nice, genuine aluminum earrings or lead necklaces. See, those things aren't worth anything. You know, my wife doesn't say, or other women say, oh, look at the piece of copper pipe that my husband cut off for me. (laughs) Why? Because it's not worth very much. No, we like to wear things that are expensive because they make a statement. It's not that you can't make jewelry out of those things and even nice jewelry out of those things. But hey, who wants to brag about a piece of copper pipe or some aluminum earrings? And so his whole point is, is don't take all of your wealth and wear it on your person because it might cause other people to stumble and you don't want to be doing that. Then the final example Paul gives, notice what the text says, not only modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair or gold or pearls, and then he says costly garments. Now Paul is not saying that you can't wear nice clothes or maybe even expensive clothes. What he is saying is don't wear any clothes that might attract attention to yourself and cause people to envy you, to think, oh, I wish I had that. In the first century, Pliny, uh, one of the early writers, he speaks of the emperor Caligula's wife who had a dress that was worth, in our standard uh, today, several hundred thousand dollars. Some of the women wore dresses that cost up to 7,000 denarii. Now remember, a denarii is a day's wage. That's a dress, isn't it? That is a dress. And, you know, you'd be sitting there, imagine the poor guy or the poor woman sitting there looking over at your dress, thinking, boy, if I could just have a piece of that dress, you know, I could live off that dress. And see, you would be causing them to lust or to envy just because of your dress. And Paul's saying, hey, don't do it. Don't do it. That's not godly. One commentator said this, Quote, generally, dress expresses taste and interest and, in fact, displays character. Thus, how a woman dresses shows what kind of woman she is, end quote. 
And Paul is not saying, come to church looking as homely as possible. He's not saying, oh, be ugly, it's such a godly virtue. No, he is not saying that. He is saying that women should make sure that they dress appropriately. He's not saying, you know, well, cover every square inch. Just make sure there's no skin showing, you know, one of those tall turtlenecks with a ruffle so your head's coming out the, with a veil over, you know. Say, who is that in there? He's not saying that. You see, depending on the context, depending on the culture, there are times when you can dress which would just be inappropriate even if you were covered up. A good example of this is Genesis 38, 14 and 15, where if you remember the story, Tamar is the daughter-in-law of Judah. And her husband dies, and so because of the kinsman-redeemer concept, Judah is obliged to give his son to her in marriage. Now, the problem is, is when Sheila, Judah's son, gets of age, he doesn't give her, give him to her to raise up offspring for the deceased son. And this is what we read in the text. So she removed her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in the gateway of Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that Sheila had grown up and she had not been given to him as a wife. And when Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, for she had covered her face. Now, notice in that context, here she is all wrapped up and all covered, and she looks like a what? A harlot. So we aren't talking about skin quotient necessarily. We're just talking about don't dress like harlots dress in order to cause people to stumble. So in some cultures, in some circumstances, you can be covered from head to foot and look like a harlot, and other times you can dress sparsely and be covered by a harlot. Either way is don't be seductive in your dress. Don't be provocative in your dress. We see a good balance of how a godly woman would dress in Proverbs 31. Remember, it's the you know, excellent wife who can find for her worth as far above jewels and the heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. As it goes down through, it says this in verse 22, listen. She makes coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Now, in that culture... Fine linen and purple were like the expensive materials. And this is like the excellent woman. I mean, if you're a woman and you just read that, you feel guilty. Because that woman is just, I mean, she does everything. She's like the perfect woman. And the whole point is this. You don't have to be ugly. He's not talking about expense necessarily. But, but if it causes somebody to stumble, that's not good. Don't let your dress cause someone else to stumble. A couple of verses later, in verse 25, we read this of the woman, that strength and dignity are her clothing, and she smiles at the future. So when you look at the proverb as a whole, you see this. The woman is beautiful not because of her appearance, but because of her godly character. That is the overarching uh, thing you see through. And then at the very end, in verse 30... Then the, um, the, the overarching uh, kind of uh, principle of her life, which relates to her beauty, is given. And it says this, charm is deceitful 
And beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, what? She shall be praised. You see, that is her goal. To remember always that charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is the one who is praised. And that's what the whole psalm is about. This is the appropriate balance. Dress nicely, never seductively, amorously, vainly. Make sure your adornment in corporate worship is to display your godly character, not your body, your wealth, your beauty. Peter says basically the same thing. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. In 1 Peter 3, uh, Peter is continuing this thought of of, uh, different levels of submission, how Christ submitted and how slaves and masters are to submit. And here he talks about wives and husbands. And he says some pretty much exactly the same things as Paul says, but he, he even gives us more detail. Look at verse 1, 1 Peter 3. In the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won by constant nagging. No, that's not what it says, does it? Without a word, by notice, the behavior of the wives. He says, listen, I know some of you wives has husbands who are unbelieving and or disobedient. And he says, I want you to know how to win them. It's not by nagging. It's not by slipping little gospel tracts under their pillow. Yeah, one of the great techniques of women who want to see their husbands saved is to you know, put key books next to their bed. We're hoping that someday they might actually read it. It says, without a word, that's God's plan. And then notice why he says without a word, verse 2, as they observe, notice this, they're watching your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external. Notice he doesn't say don't wear anything. He says don't focus merely on the external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. Think about it this way. There are some things that you can adorn yourself with that will last for eternity. Your dresses and your clothes will rot. You will leave them behind. But there are some things you can adorn yourself with that are profitable not only in this life but the one to come. And these are the ones that Peter describes as imperishable, gentle, quiet, and precious in the sight of God. Then he goes on to say, for in this way, former times, the holy women also who hoped in God, notice this, used to adorn themselves, being submissive of their own husbands. And then he explains how Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord and and on. The whole point is this. God wants us, when we come to worship, to not have appearances which cause other people to stumble which focus attention away from God and on to ourselves. D. Edmund Hebert, a commentator, writing on what Peter said, um, applies to our text as well in Timothy, and he says this, quote, The design of the passage is not to encourage slovenliness 
or sordid indifference toward female attire. Neither does it constitute an absolute prohibition of braids or the use of jewelry any more than it forbids putting on clothes. It is a warning against extravagance extravagance and self-centered display. For the Christian wife, simply to reveal um, or rely on external gaudy and modest adornment um, like the world uses would give her husband a wrong impression of her and would frustrate her spiritual purpose, end quote. So we have noted that the terms modestly and discreetly have these sexual connotations. And I just want to take a major rabbit trail right here. Because this is what's behind what Paul is saying here primarily. And we know it because of these two words. First, we need to ask ourselves, why would Paul use these two words, modestly and discreetly, to be kind of the overarching terms of everything he says, if both of them have to do with sexual connotations? The answer is fairly simple. Men and women are different. They are different. They are not equivalent. Sure, in some areas they are equal, but not equivalent. They are not identical. And I'm not just talking physically either. I am talking Mentally, emotionally, they are different. We are made different. And feminism has contributed to the misconception that basically we're identical in almost every single way but physically, which just isn't true. Now, we have distinctives. And when it comes to male and femaleness in the area of sex, we have huge distinctives. And this is what I want to address right now. Men are visually oriented. Men are aroused sexually by sight and touch. Women primarily are aroused by touch. And so there is this great difference because God has made men with this much stronger sex drive and made them to be pursuers. Women, on the other hand, are built for relationships. Sight doesn't affect them like it does guys. Guys are different. They are slower in their sexual passions. One woman might be willing, as someone said, to give her body to have a relationship, and a guy might be willing to have a relationship if he can get the body. And that is how we're built. And that's how... Society is, and we need to know this. Women, you need to know this, that guys are not women with men's bodies. And men, you need to realize that women are not men with women's bodies. You see, because we only have one orientation, because we've only experienced one thing, a lot of times we think The opposite sex is just like us, but different physically because feminism has so brainwashed our whole culture. It's just a lie. It's just an outright lie. Now, because we only know what we are, we often think wrong things about the opposite sex. Now, let me just try and show you how this is. Why do you think it is that almost all of the pornography and X-rated material out there is purchased by men. You think that's an accident? 
Hardly. It's because men are visually aroused. They are sexually aroused by looking at things. Just looking at things causes them to lust and receive pleasure. This is why it is so important for women to dress appropriately. I mean, think about this. The advertisers use this to sell everything. You know, you've got some big worm drive skill saw and this babe holding this thing. You know, you got motor oil with some supermodel. You know, they use women to sell about everything. Why is that? Because the guy looks and he lusts and he'll just, he'll take the whole package. And advertisers know this. But what I have been surprised is many women, especially Christian women, do not know this. And they are naive in this area. I remember one time going teaching through this material in a marriage class. And I was explaining male and female differences and how women are built different than, than men and men than women. And we were explaining all this. And after the class, this woman, who was always a trial to me, uh, she always dressed in ways that really I never looked at her. I mean, it was always like this. And... Um, Every time she'd be coming by, I'd, you know, I'd be looking. Well, she comes up and she's dressed in ways that I don't want to look at. And so I'm trying to talk to her. And, um, and uh, you'll know if I ever do that to you that just I'm just sparing my conscience. And so I'm talking to this woman, trying not to look at her. And she says, so you mean to tell me? That all a guy has to do is just look at a woman, and if she's not dressed right, that he could just be lusting after her? I said, absolutely. <laughs> and she turns to her husband and says, is this true? And he says, yep. She was furious. She was embarrassed. And you know what? She dressed just fine from then on. I mean, it was just like a total transformation, totally clueless that she was just, I mean, she was the torment of every guy in the foyer. <laughs> all the mature guys would do this, and all the immature guys would do this, and, you know, come on, Lord, man, just, you know, convict her heart. Um, you know, you start thinking about, should we send an envoy of uh, women to confront her or whatever? But, you know, that's how it is. And you need to understand that there's a reason why advertising agencies use women to sell about every single thing that a man would buy. Why? Because that right there is the temptation of temptations for every man. Why do you think Job said, I have made a covenant with my eyes? This is Job 31.1. I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? He just said, Job just says, I am not going to do it, man. I've made this covenant. I do not look there. Why do you think that Solomon, speaking to men in Proverbs 6.25 about uh, avoiding the adulteress, says this, quote, Do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her capture you with her eyelids. Why does he say that? Because it's foolish 
to be staring at a woman who is not your wife. And he says, don't let her capture you with her eyelids. And I don't know if you've ever watched Star Trek, but, uh, you know, sometimes you get the tractor beam out. And it grabs onto things and they can just wheel them in. And that's how it is. You know, think about it. You remember some of you probably are, you know, high school sweethearts and, you know, you look across the room and you lock eyes with that person and it's like tractor beam. (laughs) So Solomon says, don't, whatever you do, do not look into her eyes. Someone said that the eyes are the windows to the soul. Don't do it. Do not let her capture you with her eyelids. Do not desire her beauty in your heart, which means one thing, don't look. Why do you think Jesus said this on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.28? But I say to you, now notice this universal term here, that everyone who looks at anyone? No. Anyone who looks at a woman. It's like, hey, why are you picking on the guys? And lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Why did Jesus warn against lusting after women? You ever thought about that? The Bible tells both men and women not to lust, but in every instance where it picks out one gender to address, it always addresses males. That's not an accident. Why do you think that we are told to stand firm against every form of temptation? Except sexual temptation. Stand firm, therefore. Stand firm and he will flee. Stand firm. And then, as soon as you get to immorality, sexual temptation, then the Greek word fugo enters. The Greek word that we, that is derived, the, our English word fugitive. Flee immorality. Flee immorality. That is what God wants us to do, like Joseph fled from Potiphar's wife. And for some of you who are young and dating, it applies to dating as well. You cannot disobey the command to flee immorality just because you're dating. Now, this doesn't, you know, leave very many options, does it? Your daughter calls up, Mom, I'm at the theater. Uh, Johnny looked at me in the eyes and ran away. He was listening to Jack's sermon, and now he's gone. And I need a ride home. You see, a lot of people think, well, well, you know, since you're dating, it's okay to sin against God in that area because you've got to get to know him. No, it's not okay ever to sin against God. And so what do you do? You don't do anything that causes you to lust because as soon as you begin to lust, the scriptures say God commands you to run. And this is something that we're going to be teaching to the youth here pretty soon. It's not okay to stand firm if you are being tempted by your date or any other person in sexual ways. And this is why it is very good for you young men to memorize 1 Corinthians 7.1 and don't do it in the NIV. 
I mean, almost every other good version is fine, except that one just tortures 1 Corinthians 7.1, which says it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And for some reason, the NIV translated it Mary, which is never the translation of that word. It's the same word Paul used when he was on the island of Malta, and he took uh, some coals and ignited the fire. It means to touch so as to ignite into flames. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Why? Because man... You begin to, as Paul says a couple of verses later, burn with passion. Don't touch. I mean, if you're aroused visually, then touching is just, I mean, you become a practical atheist in a moment. And you know what I mean. It's like, who is God? What is morality? Women, you need to wake up to these facts because sexual sins are one of the greatest temptations in the life of of every man. Howard Hendricks said this, any man who doesn't have a problem lusting after women women has a bigger problem. You can think about that. (laughs) Consider what happened to David. Here David is, the, the sweet psalmist of Israel, the man after God's own heart. And how did he fall? Sexual immorality. One of the godliest mans, if not the godliest man in the Bible. I mean, look at all the Psalms he wrote. Consider Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived. The one who wrote Proverbs. And all these Proverbs about sexual purity. And what happened to him? Nehemiah 13, 26 tells us. Let me just read. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? You'll see what they are in a minute. Yet among the many nations, there was no king like him. And he was loved by his God, and God made him king over Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused even him to sin. Consider Samson, strongest man who ever lived. And what plagued him all of his life? What caused him to lose his strength and get his eyes gouged out and be turned into a mule? Sexual immorality. He didn't have control over his appetites in that area. In Proverbs chapters 1 through 9, Solomon writes those first nine chapters in Proverbs as a wisdom curriculum for young men to teach them how to be wise and to avoid temptation and much of it is addressed to the harlot, the adulteress, the foreign woman. And all of chapter 7, which I think is the greatest sustained section, I'm sure it is, and all the book of Proverbs focusing on one specific topic, even better than Proverbs 31 and the virtuous woman, Proverbs 7 speaks how this young man is is seduced by a woman who is described in verse 10 as this, dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. Notice how her dress is coupled with her heart attitude. And that's what we're trying to say here. Women, before you get dressed and come to church, you need to listen to what the Word of God teaches in this area. The godliest man, the wisest man, the strongest man who ever lived fell to sexual immorality. Don't come to church to show off your face and your body and your wealth. That is what Paul is getting out here. 
Now, some of you women may be saying, well, Jack, you're still being kind of vague. I mean, does it need to be one inch above the knee or one inch below the knee? I mean, how high does my collar need to be? It's like, well, let me just give you some guidelines. I have seven of them because it's a biblical number. (laughs) Here we go. Number one, remember that corporate worship starts at home when you're deciding what you're going to dress. Corporate worship starts at home when you are deciding what to wear to church. Secondly, keep in mind that some things which might be fine to wear in other contexts might not be fine to wear at church, like a bathing suit. Third, remember that you may cause men to stumble and tempt them to lust by dressing in an alluring way or a seductive way or immodestly. So you ask yourself, is what I am wearing displaying my body or my godly character? Fourth, ask yourself, is this too tight? And apply Elizabeth George's three principles. Can you see through it, down it, or up it? (laughs) Fifth, ask yourself... Is what I am wearing going to make other women envious, jealous, or covetous? If what I am wearing is so rare and expensive and coveted in my society, then don't wear it. Six, is my appearance, my hair, or my dress going to distract, tempt, or cause others to stumble and focus attention away from God and onto me and myself? In any way. And seven, what are people going to know about my heart, my priorities, and my attitudes when they look at me and my appearance? Now you know why Paul used those two terms he used. Because men are there in corporate worship. And we have problems. Okay, let's go on. What about the godly woman's action? Paul then says, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for a woman making a claim to godliness. This is really how she is to adorn herself, by good works. And Paul uses a very strong conjunction here, but to contrast what they shouldn't be doing with what they should be doing. Don't focus on your external, but on your internal. Not on your outsides, but on your character. Now, What they should attract attention to is good works as is proper for a woman making a claim to godliness. Paul adds the last part of this verse because you can do good works to attract attention to yourself. Right? You can do good deeds like some people I've known. It's like, hey, you know, I did this and I gave this and I did this and I performed this and I did this and look at my plaque and look at this thing and look at that thing and and I've got this and so many honored me and and look at my medals and look at this and look at that. And it's like, well, what what about God? It's like their whole life is a trophy to their own accomplishments and they don't want to even give unless they're recognized or get a piece of paper or some sort of accolade from other people. This is wrong. The phrase good works or good deeds appears all the way through the pastoral epistles. Let me just show you. Look at verse 15. This is just the near context where he describes what some of the good deeds might be. He says, women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in here some good deeds, faith, love, and sanctity with self-restraint. Look at chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. Speaking of widows... 
A widow is to be put on the list if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, here's some qualities, having a reputation for good works. And if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has watched the saints feed, if she has uh, assisted those in distress, if she has devoted herself to every good work. Look at verse 14, speaking of younger widows. He wants them to get married, to bear children, to keep house, to give the the enemy no occasion for reproach. Look at chapter 6, verse 18. He says this, Instruct them, and this is speaking of the rich in general, which include men and women, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and to be ready to share. Titus in chapter 2 verse 7 says basically the same thing that we are to be zealous for good deeds. He says the same thing in chapter 2 verse 14 and 3 1 and 3 8 and 3 14. It's over and over and over again. The whole point is, is make sure you're doing good works that make, make people see your commitment to God, your devotion to the things of God, not to your outward appearance. One commentator put it this way, quote, To affirm that you are a Christian is to claim to love, worship, and honor and fear the Lord. A woman cannot claim to fear God and yet disregard what His Word says about her. She cannot contradict God's design for her in the church and yet claim to love Him, end quote. So in summary, Paul is saying, Don't make your appearance show you off. Make your appearance show God off. That's what he's trying to say. You see, the world and often immature Christians value external appearance more than what God wants them to do. And they come to church not to to hear God's word, not to worship God, but to put themselves on display so maybe some people would notice them. Thomas Watson in his work, The Godly Man's Picture, said, quote, Many love the word preached only for its eloquence and notion. They come to a sermon as to a music lecture or as to a garden to pick flowers, but not to have their lusts subdued or their hearts bettered. These are like a foolish woman who paints her faith, face and neglects her health. So when a godly woman comes to worship, She adorns herself with godly character. She's trying to give glory to God. When people look at her, they don't see her flaunting her wealth, flaunting her body, flaunting her beauty, or anything, except that this woman is reserved. This woman is trying not to cause people to stumble. When many women who, like Rachel, are beautiful in form and face, have discovered that their beauty is as much of a curse as it is a benefit. I mean, our society lifts up the supermodel types, but I have talked to women who have been so cursed by their beauty because they are magnets for every sort of seething male and just wreaked all sorts of havoc in their life. But think about this. Godly character is a beauty which lasts for eternity. Your godly character is far more beautiful to God and to anybody who loves God than your external appearance. So even if, you know, you are not blessed with supermodel looks, you can know that your godly character will go with you not only in this life, but also in the life to come. That's what we read from Peter. Also, remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.16. 
Speaking of the sufferings of Christ, Paul said, Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Don't fret and worry and be anxious and overly absorbed in your external appearance. We're all going to get old if we live that long and get wrinkly. We're all going to end up in a box and the worms are going to eat us. I mean, it's over. And the goal of life is not to to preserve your physical form in perfect specimen quality. I read Spurgeon here just a little while ago, and he says, you would think that some ministers had as the goal of their life to preserve their bodies. He says, why not work extra hard for the Lord, wear out a few years sooner for the glory of God than to live out trying to keep your body, which is decaying in perfect form. So for the love of God, women, for the love of the men, for the love of the other women, dress in a way that is not going to attract attention to yourself. Don't focus on your external looks to the neglect of your internal character. Dress yourself with godly works and good deeds. And if you're thinking, well, Jack, you know, man, this is heavy. I mean, every time I come to church now, I'm going to be self-conscious. Praise God. (laughs) Praise God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that Paul used the words he did in the way he did. We thank you for the examples he used. Father, we thank you for making us like we are. We thank you for maleness and femaleness and all the joy and pleasure that can bring in the right context. But Father, may we never use our appearance to cause others to stumble. May we think of others first as more important than ourselves. May we be self-conscious. May we think how Others will receive us so that we might not be a stumbling block to them, but might give glory to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.